Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for World Food Day 2020, being brought to you by Global Minnesota with the support of organizations around the world to make sure that we take this day of celebrating the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Food and Agriculture Organization by the United Nations as an opportunity to look back and to look ahead at the importance of food security, the challenge of reaching that goal of 2030 of zero hunger, and the opportunity to hear and learn from those working on the ground to make food security, nutrition, and the warmth and comfort of caring for each other around the planet, part of the life, part of the future, part of the way that we understand ourselves as members of this global family. Today in this session, we'll be looking at food security and safety in this complex world of COVID and climate disruptions. We'll be hearing from the people who've been making organized kindness happen around the planet keeping our food safe, making sure it's where it's needed, when it's needed. We're joined today by <clears throat> three guests and we'll be hearing from them. I'll be introducing them one at a time. Amr Dowdy is the Senior Director of Operations for the World Food Program. World Food Program partners with uh, private sectors, governments, and other international organizations like the World Health Organization, who you'll also be hearing from today to make sure that the food and other emergency supplies that are needed are ready and can be gotten to the people who suddenly suffer a serious disruption. The citizens of Beirut, when there was an extreme explosion, citizens in areas where drought or flooding or hurricane hit, conflict and civil wars. But they also focus on making sure that we're thinking long-term because sometimes there are changes that happen people become internal refugees or flee to other countries to avoid conflict. And so the system that they have built at the World Food Program, we'll be hearing from the person who's been building that system for decades. Thank you so much for joining us and I'm turning the mic over to you, Amir. Thanks, Mark uh, and colleagues. Uh, good to see all of you. Uh, it's good to see Mike, uh, who he and I have been in several of these situations. I'm just going to be as brief as possible to walk you through what has been done over the course of 2020 and, and the impact of the pandemic on, on our operations globally. Uh, we, we, we started the year uh, closely uh, with the leadership of, of uh, Mike and the colleagues in WHO talking, the channels were open and we started our preparatory work for what might end up unfolding ahead of us in, uh, uh, through the year. Uh, we, ha we had a two-pronged approach. One is to, to ensure that our operations globally are scaled up and sustained in order to meet the needs of the hungry poor across the globe. At the same time, uh, the, the, the approach uh, on standing up what we call a global common services, that was done jointly 
with WHO, and it had two uh, or three, three uh, sectors, if you will, segments. One is the delivery of medical supplies across the globe uh, under the leadership of WHO. The other one is the uh, passenger uh, uh, traffic to, to ensure that humanitarian health responders are able to reach the countries they need to reach. And thirdly was the medivac or medical evacuation, which is called by, by WHO, WFP, and the Department of Operations Support in New York. Let me, let me go back to the uh, food supplies and, and ensuring our operations within WFP are scaled up and sustained. What we did is we, we took stock of what we have on the ground, what are the needs as is, and we, we approached the donors to try and basically front load our pipelines in order to ensure that we have enough food supplies across the globe uh, in case we have border closures, lockdowns, uh, inability to move supplies or export bans uh, by, by countries. And uh, we requested $1.9 billion in terms of uh, advanced financing, which the donors responded to generously. That enabled us to, to keep the supply chain uh, moving and to keep all the pipelines open. But at the same time, as a result of COVID and the impact of COVID on, on, uh, on the macroeconomics, the socioeconomical situations in many countries across the globe, we saw a quite an increase in the in the needs. So we we went ahead in, in May of this year and we appealed to the donors for additional funding in order to meet these requirements. As an, as you all heard from the executive director, uh, the numbers of acute food insecure people across the globe has gone up from 100 million to almost 140 million people in need of urge, emerg, uh, emergency food supplies and assistance. We have been scaling up. I have to report that uh, actually by, by June this year, we managed to reach 85 million people across the globe. And we are continuing to scale up our operations as per uh, uh, the needs, but also based on the donations and uh, the generosity of the donors. We are uh, facing a shortfall of, uh, we expect a shortfall of two to four billion dollars. Uh, we, we expect we will be able to receive eight billion dollars by the end of the year and the needs are 12 billion dollars to meet all the needs of the people. However, uh, what was really critical and important is our ability to ensure that borders remain open for humanitarian supplies uh, a ban on exports uh, is removed. Uh, the, the, our ability to import cargoes into, into many countries, whether through ports or border crossings, uh, remains fluid. And we have been able to do that. And it's evident in the fact that the first six months, we've managed to reach 85 million people. Parallel to that, and working closely with Mike and all the colleagues in, uh, in WHO, as well as the wider health community, we set up uh, what we call the common services. And the common services basically think of it as a commercial transport 
from points of origin, whether it is China, where the majority of the, of the cargo came from, and or Europe, uh, and we established a hub in Liège in, in Belgium to airlift cargoes from these two destinations to all different countries across the globe. We have managed to reach 169 countries. Uh, we serviced in terms of cargo almost 342 different entities, agencies, uh, NGOs, uh, charities, and, and the like. They all benefited from this uh, service. In addition to that, and parallel to that, we've created what we call a global airline, where we were, we've been moving passengers, humanitarian, health responders, and also diplomats across the globe for them to be able to reach the duty stations or the destinations they want. Uh, we've managed to reach 69 uh, countries. Uh, we've moved almost 24,000 passengers over the course of uh, five months, six months. Uh, and, and this service continues and remains vital. However, what we did in our approach from the get-go was that if there is an alternative, a, co a viable commercial alternative, we will stand out the service. So out of the 60-some countries we have reached, we are actually now at around 20 or 30 of these countries because commercial, viable commercial alternatives uh, restarted. The third element, again working with WHO, uh, was the medi medi medical evacuations of staff in order to ensure that our staff and the staff of the entire humanitarian as well as health responders remain and stay and deliver. We needed to ensure that if they do get sick, we are medically evacua evacuating them. And WHO led on this by, by arranging, and they managed the, the medical uh, evacuation cell out of Geneva. And when we are instructed by uh, or requested by, by WHO to mobilize a plane, we go with an air ambulance, pick up the patient, and bring them to the destination uh, as determined by, by WHO. It was not an easy task. Uh, we also established field hospitals, one of which is uh, WHO is managing. It was not an easy task. It was a quite a heavy lifting uh, that was required. You have to think that when we started this, many of the countries that we'd, we would usually medivac to were already suffering from the COVID uh, impact. Uh, their hospitals were full. The, the hospital beds were not available. WHO managed to, to negotiate a special access for the international humanitarian uh, agencies, the INGOs, for our staff to be able to access these medical services. So all in all, uh, that's what has transpired over the past six to nine months. The partnership with WHO played a major role in enabling us to, to achieve that as well as with UNICEF, the Global Fund, and many other entities out there. Uh, the biggest users of the cargo services were WHO and UNICEF. On the passenger services, it was 46% the UN, 45% uh, uh, NGOs, and the rest was uh, diplomatic community. 
I will stop here uh, and hand over the floor back to you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I understand you have a short video you'd like to share. Would now be the perfect time? Great. Yes, please. Please. Thank you very much, Amir. Dr. Mike Ryan <clears throat> is the Executive Director of the Emergency Programs at the World Health Organization and one of the co-creators of the Common Services and uh, a leader in helping the whole planet understand how we all have to do better if we're all gonna do better. Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Ryan. Thank you. Uh, uh, and thank you to Global Minnesota. I know this is an issue very close to your hearts over there, and uh, it's been uh, uh, a sustained journey for you as you've championed this idea and this concept for, for so long. And uh, um, it's great to be here today too, and to be with my friend Amar and uh, as well, because uh, we go back quite a way too. And uh, certainly, we were thrilled at WHO to learn of uh, the Nobel Prize for WFP. No one deserves it more. And, uh, I f and for me, what's wonderful about that, it's for the drivers and the mechanics and the engineers and the pilots and the logisticians uh, and the people who really make the world go around, literally, uh, and, and make food go around. So uh, it's, it's with huge pride and, and, and a great sense of uh, pride in, a, in, a, in our sister UN organization. Um, and in that sense, I think what's really characterized our relationship with WFP in the last nine months has been that magic of collaboration, of leveraging off each other's comparative advantages, of really learning to play doubles instead of singles, and knowing how to react to each other's strengths and support each other in our areas of weakness. Um, but that doesn't come from nowhere. We've been really trying to get this right since 2014 in West Africa when WFP stepped in with a massive operation in the Ebola response. Uh, and then subsequently over the last two years in Congo, and myself and Amr spent quite a bit of time 
you know, really orienting the two organizations to really play well off each other in terms of our comparative advantages and, and learn how to do deep field logistics together, deep field supplies, um, super uh, cold chains, uh, transport systems into infectious, potentially infected areas and all of the, the basic behaviors that we've had to expand greatly in this pandemic response we were practicing for years, doing it at a smaller scale in sometimes more extreme environments, but that gives you a sense of how to get the job done. And I think, Gabor, I think the first meeting we had of the pandemic, what was then the pandemic supply chain network was before the global emergency was declared. I think it was the 29th of January we first sat down with partners. You, uh, I think the, a lot of private sector partners actually uh, in the pandemic supply chain network, which was a network we'd put together for a number of years with the private sector that was going to was looking specifically at what would happen in a major pandemic, and a lot of those scenarios had been had been worked out, and then the creation of the uh, uh, the various iterations of our uh, task force and how we've moved forward on that. But I think uh, sometimes for me, it's 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 explained or presented in the simplistically in that the global supply chain wasn't just broken. It was broken in every single place in terms of medical supplies. It was broken in terms of raw materials, broken in terms of manufacturing, broken in terms of, dist of, of procurement, of, of uh, distribution. The whole system from end to end was broken and we had a massive knife fight effectively going on over those supplies. It wasn't just a physical break. There was a massive competition and a breakdown in global order there was no queue. This was uh, this was uh, effectively a mad rush to get any materials that existed, and there were whole issues within that of pricing, and gouging of quality and substandard equipment that could enter into the system. So we had an awful lot of things to manage, not just accessing material, but making sure that we had quality material that was validated that we could put into our system and offer to our beneficiaries. With, with a degree of security that a health worker was going to be in a piece of PPE that would actually protect them or in a pair of gloves that weren't going to fall apart as they put them on. Uh, so there was a whole range of things uh, we had to do. We also had to engage in a lot of capacity building to facilitate the supplies. If we look at lab, the lab story goes all the way from sequencing the virus in the first week of January through developing assays in Germany to contract manufacturer by the end of January, distribution to 150 countries in February, and ensuring that the workers who were going to use those uh, tests were trained and pre-trained in South Africa, for example, in Africa, all of the 50 countries were trained in South Africa and in Senegal in the two WHO influenza reference labs that we've been investing in for influenza surveillance in Africa. So everything builds on everything else. So pulling together all of those different skills and then being able to use this massive asset we have which is the wfp system it's just it's the most outstanding system i've ever experienced and i've benefited and we've benefited from wfp logistics wfp transport not just the food side i mean the the true value of wfp is the lives it saves in securing food for those who are truly truly needing help uh, the food crisis is much bigger than the hunger crisis and I think we need to, in that sense, say that good quality food and right now, not just the absence of food, but the absence of quality of food is the single biggest killer on this planet when it comes to both chronic and short term disease. So we have a huge issue to deal with on the planet of food. WFP provide a vital service 
on the on the hunger side. Uh, but in just coming back to what we've done together and in, in terms of this response, and we did have the work together on Medivac and on the hospitals. WFP uh, can build field hospitals now, probably the fastest in the world. And we've got to run behind them and try and equip them and then try and staff them and train the staff. And it's interesting that the Ghana hospital is operating as, a, as an international rescue center. Uh, the, also, there's a unit in Nairobi. The one in Addis was not needed, but it's, it was myself and Amma, I remember we were deciding how we would mothball it, but actually the government of Ethiopia approached us and said, can we use half of it if you help us equip it? So we've done that. And the other half right now, and it's just benefiting from funds now from the UN Solidarity Fund, will become a regional training center for Africa, a real field-based hospital system for training physicians and emergency medical teams from across Africa in a real world situation. So again, but that is their mothball that if the situation deteriorates uh, in Africa, we can always turn that back into an evac facility in, in literally in minutes if we need to. Um, on the, um, the, the issue of supplies, uh, again, establishing a task force with many agencies together to pool our purchasing power. WFP offering free freight, free freight services to make sure everyone stood in an orderly line saying, look, we will give it, we will move it, it will be free. You just have to you know, get in line and we need to prioritize what's going to move where and when. Uh, develop, developing quali you know, minimum quantity models and allocation models so countries could be sure they would get something. They wouldn't get left behind. They wouldn't be gazumped or gouged out of the system. Uh, leveraging a lot of what uh, Amr spoke about, the logistic and political muscle to overcome import-export re restrictions. It was, it's been a huge battle, documentation, getting things out of customs, getting things into countries, getting them cleared through customs. We've worked very hard together to get rid of those obstacles. We have over 300 plus manufacturers feeding into the access system right now, all having to be validated and quality assured. These are medical supplies for the main on our side. I know the system moves more than that. It moves a lot of material for UNICEF and, and many other stuff, but on our side, these are specialized medical material subject to very strict quality guidance. And therefore we had to be very sure that the manufacturers in our pipeline were actually uh, producing quality products. Um, and uh, uh, we also had to link the specs. You can't send uh, ventilators to countries. Ventilators and oxygen concentrators and all of this material is very, very, uh, can save lives. You can also kill patients if people are not trained to use that particular type of equipment. It's like scuba equipment. And the size of the tubings and the connections and the spare parts and all of those other issues and the servicing of these units is just as important as sending the unit. So we had to send the service with the unit. Uh, and even with WFP, we've been now for a number of countries have been supplying kit-based oxygen concentration plants. So now we have a number of countries in the most fragile of states who will actually become independent uh, of um, independent in their oxygen needs for medical facilities. So it wasn't just WFP and WHO. We had in this BMGF guaranteeing, providing guarantees, market guarantees for supplies. We had the Clinton Health and Access Initiative and the Global Fund and ourselves operating as a procurement consortia, pooling our money together in three consortia. We had, uh, again, uh, WFP coordinating the whole logistics effort and not just with WFP, I believe, Amr, you had Amazon and you had all kinds of people involved in this process for delivery and many, many other things. 
I, I rarely have witnessed so many partners come together so quickly to deliver such vital equipment to so many frontline health workers. Uh, and the health workers of the world and the patients who got the concentrators and the oxygen and all of the other supplies owe a huge debt to those individuals and those organizations who put aside their organizational differences, worked with ourselves, worked with WFP. But I honestly don't think it would have happened without the energy that WFP and WHO put into this process. To, to, because by demonstrating that we could do this, two organizations that are perceived as so different in culture, so different in objectives, so different in how we do things, that we could come together and we could make this happen, then everyone would get on board. And I think it will be one of the stories pandemic is over, at least I hope it is. Uh, and I hope we don't develop amnesia directly after this and we can remember how we made something very broken work. And with great credit to Amar uh, for his personal leadership uh, and to others, to Amir and to uh, David and so many others in WFP. We always say in WHO that WFP rocks. Uh, we believed it before, we believe it now and we'll believe it into the future. And um, I, I want to put a little coda on this that for many years I served as Minnesota Secretary of State and in that role I was in the senior advisory board of our National Guard. And at some point about a thousand of our local young men and women were mobilized and trained to go be the back office as part of the Ebola battle in Liberia. Trained for over a year. We were proud of them. Of course, we worried for them and we were ready for them to go. And about a month before their destination uh, departure time, uh, the mission was canceled because of the success of the work that you had done. WHO in combination with the public, the public health people in Nigeria and Liberia um, meant that our young men and women uh, didn't participate in that particular, we're, we're all over the globe but it was because of the work that you had done. I just want people uh, in Minnesota and other parts of the world to know how interconnected we actually are, including when our young people move around the planet. It's because we have that kind of generosity and that kind of humanitarian service as a value, as a virtue, 
but sometimes when somebody else has taken care of the problem, we celebrate because that's happened. And I want to promise you that we want to make sure people do not forget. And that's one of the promises that generations have made to generations before, never forgetting the Holocaust, never forgetting the lessons of two world worlds. We're not going to forget these lessons as well. So thank you again. Ruth Pertrand, so glad you could be with us today. Ruth serves as a senior scientist for food safety and public health for Ecolabs, one of our largest, most global firms here in Minnesota, and also one of the true leaders in the corporate world on the sustainable development goals, all of them. And so we're so thrilled that you could be with us here today to talk about the food safety side of these bigger questions that we are looking at today on World Food Day 2020. Thank you, Mark. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to be part of this panel and I'm just honored to be here and, and among these day's events as well. Obviously, feeding the world is paramount, but we have to make sure we're doing it safely. And I want to start off with a little story. My passion for this topic started well over 35 years ago when I heard an inspirational talk by then U.S. Senator George McGovern, who came to my university, where he told us about the Food for Peace program and school feeding programs. But reality was that the inequities he spoke about were really not familiar to me at all. I was a middle-class kid from the suburbs outside of New York City, um, and it was just foreign. But his remarks fueled an interest and a passion in me to pursue a field of study that would allow me to relate my science interests with something very tangible to my family and friends, but also to play an impact on the world. So I've had a career in food safety and public health, and I believe I play a tiny little role in helping to protect the food supply for everybody. And then this pandemic hit us. Next slide, please. Which has been terribly disruptive for so many reasons, as we all know. But I tend to be kind of an optimistic person because I think despite the sufferings that we're all going through, we can take from it some additional clues about how to manage some of these challenges. So we certainly need to work to limit the damaging effects of COVID-19 on food security and, and nutrition impacts, but also to do it safely. I think it's a really strong wake-up call for continued focus on hygiene and food safety practices so no one is going to be further harmed in these efforts. And as uh, the previous speakers have mentioned, we certainly are all in this together and need to work collaboratively as best we can. Next slide. But where do we focus? This is a really big deal here. So let's look at some of the impacts that the pandemic has had uh, to give us some clues perhaps about where to focus. We certainly have heard and know that there has been big impact on the food industry and on certainly supply chains as well. But we had labor shortages as well across the supply chain from production through processing and retailing, um, certainly leading to potentially longer term risks for food production and its availability. The reality is there were and continue to some extent to be occurrences of illness among the laborers who are the key to our food supply. 
what it really did is sharpen the focus of employers on the need to think about their health of their workers and managing the realities of absenteeism to a degree that they never had to before. But also they had to be ready to pivot and bring in temporary workers in some cases and make sure that they were fully trained in these key food safety practices that they were asked to do. We also had to think more broadly about what impacts workers outside of the workplace. How are they commuting to the factories and establishments where they come to work? What, where might they be exposed to illnesses outside of work and how would that impact what they were doing in food handling? We really need a more holistic view of these kinds of risks that are out there. We certainly have heard about big disruptions to the food supply chain. There is potential for economically motivated adulteration as ingredient substitution may have to happen. But keeping up on local public health requirements and overall economic consequences is really key here. We need to acknowledge too that there's a lot of COVID weariness out there. We need to care for each other accordingly. But certainly there were impacts on food waste as well. The reality is with food service establishments and businesses being such a big part of our food chain around the world, there's a lot of specialized growing and food animal production that occurs today that's aimed at these food service and customers. So suddenly to have a screeching halt to our food service markets around the world, there were significant outcomes, dumping of milk and culling of animals and overall waste of unused food that just couldn't be served. Consumers played a role as well. We have all seen pictures of some stockpiling that occurred and not all that was able to be used. But we've heard about some ways that the World Food Program has been helping with this. There is very practical ways as well. For example, the US Department of Agriculture put together a food box program where they purchased fresh produce, dairy, meat, etc., packaged them and sent that off to U.S. families who were in need. There also were some policy changes allowing for movement of typical food service kinds of items into more retail settings, relaxing some of the labeling requirements, for example, that allowed for this food to move to where it was better needed. But through it all, Staying true to identification of the most relevant risks and development of the right risk management strategies has got to be in place. Next slide, please. Consumers were impacted as well, of course, but I think it's interesting to think about uh, some specifics. The International Food Information Council did a survey of consumers in July of this year, and fully a quarter believed that meat had become less safe compared with their perceptions before the pandemic. Especially among younger people, there was a lot of skepticism about different kinds of food categories like packaged fruits and vegetables, frozen foods, dairy products, plant protein, which they perceived had become less safe. We also need to keep an eye on consumer behaviors. I do believe that it's behavior that drives food safety practices. 
And we really did see some direct impacts of fear about COVID-19 that potentially could lead to safety risks. For example, there were many, many more people cooking at home. And we are not, as a society, a large uh, population of home cooks. So providing people information and safe information on preparation and storage and handling of food is important and needed to be done. There also were risky behaviors. We've all seen some concerns related to the practice of, say, applying bleach to produce to clean it because of the perceived risk, which resulted in increases in calls to poison control centers when such treated produce was managed within the home setting. There were some fears from delivered food or meat items, and some people resorted to storing their perishable foods outside of their homes at potentially abusive storage temperatures, which they believed allowed for the viral particles to die off, but also allowed for proliferation of harmful pathogenic bacteria. Next slide, please. So in response, we need to be ready to combat these concerns and be alert for others that may arise. We really need a strengthened One Health focus, including elements such as a science-based risk characterization approach. We have seen import restrictions in some geographies that are not based in science, and we need to work to combat these as best as we can. We need to stay true to sanitary and phytosanitary stands, supporting mechanisms for regulatory compliance and stakeholder engagement in policy decisions to make sure that these sanitary standards can be consistently met. This has to relate to decision-making and broad participation in the setting of these standards as well. And finally, public-private partnerships are key to uh, promote such standards and drive towards our overall public health assurance of a safe and secure food supply. I will stop here and I look forward to uh, discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ruth, Amber, Mike. We've come to the end of our time, I'm afraid, and this is a conversation we need to pick up again but we also want to go back and remember that all of these things that have happened in the context of this pandemic were built upon work and you know, real partnerships that have been developing over the years. And we need to honor that by remembering to keep this message and this story alive, to keep building out those public-private partnerships but also really um, as we move into the next normal, as we've called it, to remember that pandemics happen, disasters happen, hurricanes happen, perhaps now we're seeing more and more intensity, et cetera. But we've always as a people found ways to respond, but it's only been in this past, really in our lifetimes, that we've learned how to respond at a global scale with the speed, with the safety, with the attention to equity, to fairness. We've come to a new place in our ability as people to take care of each other. 
We celebrate that this week with this great announcement about the, the Peace Prize for the World Food Program, that linking of food and peace. But we know that as humans, as residents on this planet, as the people we are who care for each other, we have to organize that kindness, we have to deliver that kindness, and we have to have the kind of gratitude and response and generosity among the people within our governments and between each other as countries. Thank you all for your service to humanity, for the work that you do every day, and for today bringing us this message of hope, but this reminder of the incredible work that's been done and the admonition that we not allow this to ever be forgotten. Thank you again to everyone for joining us today and stay tuned. Our next hour is coming right up today at World Food Day 2020. Thank you again to our panelists and goodbye.